0: Dhruv Saxana. How's it going, Dhruv? Very well, sure. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. I'm very excited, too. So please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm Dhruv. I'm one of the founders of Shibbob. At Shibbob, we help small to mid-sized e-commerce businesses get access to best-in-class logistics. I started the business alongside my co-founder, Dewey, in mid to late 2014. So we've been at it for a while. And I'm calling in from Chicago. That's where the company was headquartered. So pre-COVID, we used to have everyone at our office in Chicago in the West Loop here. But since COVID, we had a remote first. So now we are all distributed across the country and the globe. But I'm still very much in Chicago.
0: Very nice. Very nice. So you mentioned you work with small and mid-sized businesses that want that. So e-commerce companies. And before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about this is... Amazon used to be a great solution, and I think it probably still is for a lot of companies. But they have very exacting standards. They don't want you doing certain things. They want uh, they have a profile that they want to work with. And if I was to start tomorrow and have a company and I got up to speed, it would take me a long time before I would be an Amazon guy. I may, and maybe never, if, I, if you have to store anything. And so you said we're like the... Amazon solution for those small and mid-sized businesses, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, Joe. So think of us as the Amazon fulfillment equivalent and more for the direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands, brands who want to build a direct relationship with their customers. So when you think of the Amazon ecosystem, when you and me go to Amazon.com, we are buying directly from Amazon, right? And so the brand doesn't really get a chance to build a direct relationship with right. us, our consumers. But now there's this growing uh, portion of e-commerce dominated by these brands who actually say, I want to own the customer relationship. I want to spend money in sales and marketing building my own customer relationship. And I want to offer to my customers the same shipping experience that that customer gets when they buy something on sh- amazon.com, which is you know this fast and free sort of shipping. And so as a direct-to-consumer brand, how do you make that happen? And that's where ShipBob comes in, where we have a network of fulfillment centers across the globe. We give these brands access to great information, which allows them to know exactly how to distribute their inventory across our warehouse. So that when you place an order, let's say from Michigan, it gets shipped out from the closest fulfillment center in Illinois, not from New York or not from California. So it allows these brands to offer a two-day, next-day shipping experience across all the different sales channels that they're selling on without having to spend a large amount of dollars in building their own fulfillment infrastructure.
0: Right. And by the way, it's not just small and mid-sized businesses that want to manage that customer experience, as you mentioned. It's all sorts of firms. So we, I know Nike left Amazon, and so did Allbirds, and... Because they, they wanted to manage, own that customer experience, which we all, I think so many brands are now recognizing the value in that. But I think also, and again, I love Amazon. I buy from them constantly. There is some challenges also when you go, Amazon is a marketplace, which is great for me. So when I go and I say, I would like to buy a pair of socks, and I if I even know what the brand is, Amazon's saying, are you sure you want that brand? Because here's another brand and it's cheaper. And you go okay. So as a consumer, maybe I want to see those op- options, right? But if I'm a brand and I say, "Wait a sec," I don't. Joe asked for my socks, and now you're showing him every sock under the sun. By the way, one of them probably says "essentials" on it, meaning it's an Amazon. Product. Amazon
1: basics,
0: yeah, so, or basics. I'm sorry, yeah. So, do they go by essentials or basics or both?
1: I think it's. Amazon Essentials? Actually, I don't know, but I think Amazon Basics is their in-house brand. And so that's the real competitor to most products uh, where Amazon is literally using all of the data that they capture on the front end to figure out what products that the Amazon's Basics should carry and compete with the third party sellers who've actually made their platform very successful. Yeah,
0: so if I'm a little company and I say, finally I got to the top and I'm selling on Amazon my my wonderful socks and Amazon's like, hey, you sure you want those socks? You don't need Joe's socks, get these other socks. <laughs> no socks. And that's by right. the way, the the customer who's buying my socks, I think of them in my, as my customer. But You know who else thinks of them as their customer? Amazon. Amazon, <laughs>
1: that's right, that's right. And I effectively, you know, The reason why this direct-to-consumer brands is possible now, because the tools and the infrastructure for a brand to be able to market to their customer base actually exists now. So thanks to social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, etc. You don't need to be a Nike to build a brand for your products. You and me can go out and use these tools to build an audience for a product. So that change has allowed these direct-to-consumer brands to think and realize that they don't need Amazon for all of the demand, maybe a portion of it, but they can redirect a large portion of the demand back to their website and own the customer relationship.
0: Yeah, excellent. Well, I want to get more into that in a minute, but um, tell us a little bit about you. where did you grow up? where did you go to school? Tell us a little bit about you before you and your partner started ShipBob.
1: Yeah, for sure. And so I grew up in New Delhi, India. My co-founder, Dewey, he's also from India. So we've you know, our parents were family friends. And so we've known each other through all our lives. And so after our high school in Delhi, India, we came to the US in 2007 to pursue engineering. So I went to Purdue, a school in the Midwest here for electrical engineering. Up. Went to, <laughs> up, yes. Then <laughs> I went to University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign for his engineering. We both graduated. Came to Chicago in 2012 where I was working as a software engineer at another Chicago-based startup. And as, you know, as most engineers, uh, what we were doing in nights and weekends, we were running these side experiments and hobbies and just to make some extra money on the side. And one of the hobbies or projects was running an e-commerce business that we had come up.
0: Oh, what did you guys sell?
1: We were selling, basically it was a service, you know, this is like 2012-ish where Instagram had been acquired by Facebook for like a billion dollars. So digital photo sharing seemed to be like the big thing. And so we said, what if we start doing retro photo sharing where people could text a photo to us, we would print that photo, we would frame it, handwrite any message you wanted us on that photo, and then mail it to your friends and family all over a text message. And so we had just graduated school. So the our audience was a lot of college students who were missing home, missing their grandparents, et cetera, wanted to send them some pictures, et cetera. So we would run to the post office here in Chicago at the Willis Tower to basically ship out our, you know, frame photos out. And standing in lines at the post office seemed like a massive headache because it took us a lot oh, of yeah, time. yeah, it is. Yeah. And so we said, how do other e-commerce businesses automate their process of shipping? because we were able to automate everything else, except this part around shipping. And we realized that there wasn't really a good solution built out for e-commerce shipping, especially for the smaller end of the e-commerce. And so that's how we said, okay, let's talk to other e-commerce businesses, figure out if there's a problem to be solved here, and if ship, and if we can build our own solution to do it. And that's how we started thinking about ShipBob by literally standing for hours and days outside post offices, and trying to gather customer feedback on, you know, is there a problem? A real problem to be solved. And there was. <laughs> yeah, oh, we got super lucky. There was, yes.
0: <laughs> yep. So you mentioned you you grew up in New Delhi. That's right. That's right. I just talked to Kashal from Far Eye. You, uh, New Delhi is a small town. You might know him, Kishal from Far Eye. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've
1: heard of him. He's from. He's in Chicago as well, is he?
0: Yes. Yep. Just moved. That's where the headquarters is.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So you were eighteen when you moved here?
1: Somewhere, yeah, in that yeah, eighteen. 18, 19, in that ballpark.
0: So what was your first... So had you been to the United States prior to going to Purdue?
1: As a tourist, yes. Uh, as a couple of times here and there, but nothing... No, I'd never stayed longer than a couple of weeks. And and so, yeah, as a student, it was really my first time into the U.S.
0: So what was what were some of your first impressions? What what surprised you about moving to, the, to uh, Purdue, which is in Indiana?
1: Yeah, which is in Indiana. That's the fact that I didn't gather from the website because i landed at o'hare and then we went on this bus from oh chicago to indiana for 3 hours and all of it was effectively corn <laughs> right
0: between chicago and in indiana there well once you get past the trucks it's all corn cuz chicago is all trucks
1: <laughs> it is yeah but you know o'hare you take on you get on the expressway so you and and i think all of our view and all of this while that we had seen U.S. was all the big cities like New York, right. etc. So we this was a very different United States. So you're going to Laf- was it South Laf-
0: West Lafayette? Lafayette, West, West, West Lafayette. Lafayette, West Lafayette, yeah. not New York City. It is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Far away, far, far removed from New York City, so I was my first impression was, oh no, uh, like this is not what the marketing brochures said the United States is, but once you get over the fact, look the things that that still impress me about the u s it's it's really one the it's one of the best entrepreneurial cultures and the infrastructure that probably exists anywhere in the world. And two, I fundamentally believe the freedom and the meritocracy—you know, this your ability to have an idea and work hard towards it, and your and your ability to be successful or not—is not dependent on your ability to execute and your hard work. And I don't think that is very true in large parts of the world. And so, you know, I think in the U.S. this notion of working hard and being successful because of the outcomes of your hard work and luck, of course. I think it's very, very true.
0: Yep. I think it's also, you, you ended up in West Lafayette. I mean, if you look at the leadership in engineering, and I know people would go, well, that's Stanford. Forever it's been produced, probably has, when you think of mechanical engineering and you think of just engineering in general, they were the leaders forever, right? Um, there's MIT. Of course, they're leaders. Uh, there's, a, there's a hundred universities that can claim we produce great engineers and Purdue's got to be in the top f- couple no matter what you're talking about and i always think like somebody said um netscape those guys are from indiana right they're university of indiana that's where uh mark andreessen came yeah was it A-Banish university of illinois
1: illinois albana Midwest. Yep.
0: You think of these universities pumping out really good students. And by the way, so many of those good students are now from India, China, wherever. And I think I have my own challenges with you. I love University of Michigan where I went, but I have challenges with it because you can't get in if you live 20 minutes from the university, but you can get in when you're from the other side of the world. And I always think we have to, just, we have to expand it. So you go, yeah, we, we, we can educate. Three hundred thousand people a year. There's a reason, no reason not to right now, but anyway, getting back to it. So you came to the U.S. at 18, and you graduated from there. And I love that you. What you said is so many engineering types kind of have are in that hacker mentality. Like I know there's hacker spaces everywhere now, and the, and that that idea of just I see a problem, I'm going to solve it. That's right. So what year did you guys actually formally say? This is a problem we're going to solve. Let's close down the, the picture thing and start ShipBob.
1: I think it was 20, 2014. And, you know, the reason why we decided to go all in on ShipBob was we got into this incubator called Y Combinator. And so YC, as it's called, is based out of Mountain View twice a year you know, you send in your application, they have this rigorous mechanism, they interview you, and if you get in, they give you $120,000, which is enough capital for you to, you know, get started. And so we applied to YC, we got super lucky that we got in. And once we got in, you know, we said, okay, well, this is at least a proof point that this idea has legs and we have some capital that this the YC gave us. So, so we left our full-time jobs and decided to pursue Shibao full-time.
0: Yep. So when you say you got lucky to get into Y Combinator, that I think it's a lot more than luck because that is a very exclusive club. They don't take very many, but I think they probably take 1% of the people who apply to be in Y Combinator.
1: Yeah, something like that. Like where they said the acceptance rate at YC is lower than Harvard and Stanford combined of some sort.
0: And I also think, so you mentioned they gave you some money to get started, but I think also as soon as other venture capitalists see this is a Y Combinator company, they're interested, right? Yes. Well, let me say more interested. I know it's not easy.
1: (laughs) No, no. I think, you know, but there is a step change where after you graduate from YC, there are a large number of investors who are willing to at least take your meeting and write you a seed check because they assume that YC has vetted you and, and this idea must have legs. Remember in the early, like at seed stage, you're really betting on the founders. You're betting on the market, and you're hoping that the founders can figure out the right product for the market. There really isn't a lot of proof points uh, outside of that.
0: They expect that there'll be pivots. They ex- but yeah. they said we got two good guys here, and we think that directionally. We know e-commerce is growing, and we've got two yes. founders that we trust. And they went through Y Combinator. Write that. Write that check, and don't even ask questions.
1: Exactly, and and that's <laughs> you know, and I think that's the piece that YC uh, or the Silicon San Francisco area has a big advantage, at least then it had 2014, 2015, because that network of angel investors existed. In the Midwest in Chicago, for example, people would ask you like five-year, balance sheet right. five-year cash flow statements what is your revenue projection like at the early stages you don't have any of that information so you really have to make a bet on people first and uh, in the valley maybe because they have had so many bets you know over the course of the year that they're a lot open to making those bets so we were able to raise our seed round of one million dollars fairly quickly after yc so in 20 20- at the beginning of 2015, I guess we had a total of we had raised a million dollars and we had Jeff one our third co-founder, join us. And so and so we really got started maybe 2015.
0: Now, when you started getting these investments, the people ask you, you need to move to San Francisco, you need to move move to Mountain View.
1: Yes. Well, nobody explicitly made it a point in while they were funding that you have to, otherwise we won't fund you, but all of them at least in the early days, expected us to move to San Francisco because obviously that's where the startups happen. But our point was, look, our earliest customers are in Chicago because that's how, where we, me and they, where we were based out of. Two, we knew all the post offices in Chicago and our early go to market was effectively we would stand for hours outside the post offices trying to convince e-commerce businesses to use us. So we our, our retort back to VCs was look, we want to be close to where our customers are. Our customers are at these post offices. We know where the post offices are, and so we want to be in Chicago. And also the cost of living and the cost of engineering right. salaries are a lot lower in Chicago. So your dollar will go a lot longer in Chicago versus being in the Bay Area. And so that worked out for us uh, for sure because we were able to be a lot more cost effective in a very low gross margin. Like, Logistics is not a very high gross margin business, so you need to keep your operating costs really low. And so that became a big advantage for us, is that our operating costs were much lower than most other companies in the Valley.
0: Yeah. Well, I think also, and I've heard this multiple times on my podcast, is we didn't want to move to Mountain View. We didn't want to move to Silicon Valley because when we get there, our and VCs recognize this now also, is that I have to pay a higher salary because housing prices are higher. And then the real estate that we have for the office is way more expensive. And so some of them are saying, wow, I I was making a big bet on these founders, but really what I'm betting on is, or where I'm investing in is in real estate, housing real estate and commercial real estate. And there was actually a a venture capitalist who went to University of Michigan, came back a few years ago and he was speaking and he said, stay here. He He says, what's ridiculous is when you get to Silicon Valley and you get to Mountain View, all these, and you start investing, you go, all these kids are from the Midwest, and they moved out of relatively inexpensive areas to move here and to live in really expensive places. And he says, the talent is here. So actually, um, Ann Arbor is a perfect example. They have, I won't mention the name of the company, but it was a company that's now been acquired by Cisco. And they said, we're not moving. The talent is here. We, the University of Michigan pumps out all the, all the students we could ever use and the real estate's inexpensive, why would we move out West?
1: Totally, totally. I'll, I'll make one more point, Joe, which was advantage, I guess, also for founders who are thinking is, you know, when you're in the Valley or in just in the hub where all of the startups are, the people who join you, maybe the early engineers included, they join you because you might be the hottest startup at that moment in time. And they are basically filling up the resumes with the one hot startup after the other. Unencumbered, I guess, with what the company is actually trying to do. Versus when you start a company, maybe in the Midwest or in Chicago, for example, where startups, at least in 2015, were not like the hottest thing to do. The people who joined you really, one, believed in the mission of the company. And two, were again, betting that the early team, including them, would be able to figure out how to build a real company. So they would stay for a lot longer compared to an average engineer in the Valley who's maybe he or she is jumping from one startup to the other because they're more enthralled with the purpose of being a part of a startup than actually building a startup itself. And so that is, you know, from our early cohort of people who joined us in 2015, 2017, to all the way up to 2018, I think a large portion of the company is still a part of Shiba because they fundamentally believe that the, what the company is doing is something that this is worth them spending a large portion of their lifetime on.
0: Yeah. So let's shift back to your company for a minute. So you mentioned that you wanted you wanted to provide that kind of that Amazon-like fulfillment experience for smaller and mid-sized companies. Was that your original goal?
1: Yeah, it was very much like, yeah, like, you know, helping e-commerce businesses get access to best-in-class logistics. Now the shipwop capability is a lot broader. So we right. are actually... Much evolved from the Amazon-like parallels, but yes, that was the initial.
0: So, I, so you guys have had uh, great growth. So, talk a little bit about how how what you guys do has evolved, and then talk about. I know you have so many locations now. Talk about that, all that growth. I know uh, we don't have all day, but uh, <laughs> but please explain the growth and the and the evolution of the idea and of your company.
1: For sure. Yeah, so we have close to 7,000 or so e-commerce brands
0: who
1: use us every single day for running 100% of all of their logistics. And so the growth for Shibab has been like on the demand side, which is on the merchant side. We have these e-commerce merchants and they are selling products not only on their own website, but they're also selling on marketplaces like Amazon, Walmart, eBay. And they're also selling in retail you know, on Macy's.com, Nordstrom, Target, or in their own brick and mortar stores. So they need a logistics solution which can store their inventory and can help them sell their inventory across all the different sales channels that they are selling on because they want to maximize their sales, right? So ShipBob is the global because we have locations across the globe. We have a we have a global and an omni-channel fulfillment solution for these brands, no matter what sales channels that they're selling on. So that's on the demand side. Now to to service all of these e-commerce merchants, you need to also have a lot of space in your fulfillment network because you need that space to take in all of that inventory from, on behalf of these merchants. So that's why we have close to 40 or so locations across the globe now. So we have 30 or so. 40?
0: Whoa. 40,
1: yes. We, majority of them in us us a couple in canada three or four in uk and europe and in australia because we our entire premise is that we if our merchants have access to their sales information we can help them distribute their inventory across the globe so that somebody when they place an order from UK it doesn't get shipped out from the US it gets shipped out from our UK location or from our right. Australia location correspondingly for the US, for the Australian consumers and so our premise of storing and distributing inventory very close to the end customer allows our merchants to reduce their cost of shipping because packages don't travel long distances but it also reduces the transit time because again packages are Inventory being placed so close to then customers shrinks the time in transit. So now, as an e commerce brand, I can offer two day, next day, same day shipping to my customers, and I can do it at a cost effective manner without, as a brand, you having to deploy millions of dollars in building out your own warehouses and hiring your own logistics fulfillment associates. You yes. only pay Ship for every, only if we ship an order on your behalf, right? So as a brand, you can now convert your fixed cost business into variable costs. So you only pay us per usage, which completely alters the operating costs of a brand and makes them a lot more capital efficient.
0: Yeah. I love what you're do- doing. I, I have to tell you, I ran across a company, European company selling in the U S through, through retail stores and tons of retail stores. And they knew that we got to move to e-commerce. They were doing like a, a consumer product. Um, and, they said we're starting to get more and more orders from Canada, and what we and they had hired like a uh, partner to help them up there, but like a it wasn't they didn't have the they didn't have the uh, the right sales amount up there because of the partner wasn't working out. So when you think about e-commerce now, you think about websites. So let's just say I, I'm in Detroit, but I'm I'm 20 minutes from Windsor, Ontario. So they asked me, can you help us open a th- get a fulfillment partner in in canada we already have one here in in the u.s so they had one in ohio and they wanted me to help them i said well it's going to be in toronto somewhere G- gta greater toronto area yeah and i was like oh my god ohio's eight hours from toronto it's ridiculous that i have to go look at getting a, a new 3 pill, but it's a different country and so I said, you know, you want to do everything you can to avoid having a fulfillment center here and a fulfillment center there because you have different systems and you have different payments. I, so you, if somebody comes to you and says, I, I st- I'm i in the U.S., but I'm starting to get sales outside the U.S., that's right. you can say, yeah, no problem, S- seamless.
1: Yes, that is the pitch, right, which is as an e-commerce brand your customers are not geographically constrained within a state or within a nation state. Like you can find customers who like your product across the globe. And so for shipbob uh, we are presenting ourselves as a global omni-channel solution for these e-commerce brands, no matter what your size of your brand might be so that you can go to Facebook, you can start targeting customers in that particular age demographic who might like your product. And you don't have to worry about whether they're, in the US or UK or Canada or Australia, as long as they fit the right profile and they like your product, you should be able to service them, which is effectively what the big brands have done all throughout history. And so if we can give that power to a brand of any size that they can compete against the big brands on the basis of building a better product than building a better supply chain, then I think these small brands have a fighting chance. And so that's what we've been on.
0: Right. And you know, one of the things I, I hear a lot is people in Latin America now are buying on Amazon and then stuff is being shipped to uh, like a location and then being bundled and then shipped down to Colombia or Guatemala, Mexico, wherever they might be, wherever Amazon won't service, somebody else will service. And I keep thinking, this is just lost opportunities. I, I don't know what Amazon's done on that, but I suspect before long, they'll be selling in all those markets if they aren't already. But if I'm a brand, and I, by the way, I hope I, you don't mind, but you mentioned a brand. Can we mention the 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 brand? What we discussed before we hit record?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think so.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned you have Tom Brady. Tom Brady. TV, TV, TV Twelve, which is his number. And I love Tom Brady. He went to University of Michigan. I'm a big fan. There went there. And Tom Brady once sells brand his stuff worldwide. Right. So there's. I've been before COVID. I was in Mexico a lot. We were talking about soccer, and they kept saying, "Oh, I'm a." bears fan or a green bay fan we have a, our markets are starting to be global and if you go online it doesn't matter if you're in, sh- in what country you're in anymore there's some cl- countries that are closed but most are starting to be open and
1: people want to buy from these brands
0: so um, i need global fulfillment
1: yes exactly and, and that pitch you know of course has been resonating really well i'll give you one more on the global side because most of the brands you know use uh, social media for advertising the cost of acquisition for me as a brand in the U S has skyrocketed over the last two years, because all of these brands are trying for yours and mine attention. And so if the cost of acquisition in the U S keeps going up, it is only natural for a brand to find are there other channels or other geographies that the cost of acquisition is still pretty low that I can actually take advantage of and build, build a higher margin business. And so a lot of brands, very early on in the life cycle are starting to go abroad, because they're realizing the cost of acquisition in some of the markets that you talked about is a lot lower. And, and but people still want their products. And so they can take advantage of a global supply chain solution right. to do some of that arbitrage on the cost of acquisition. Because in the US, the cost of acquisition has gone up significantly. Yeah,
0: and you think of like this country in the United States, and I, I know I can speak to this because I live here. When I was growing up, I always, I'm getting old, I can say this, uh, when I was growing up, my dad had a friend from, he worked at Ford Motor Company in engineering, and he brought home his friend, his friend was named Singh Singh. And he was from India. And he was yeah. the only person any of me or my friends had seen from India. he was swimming in our pool. We were barbecuing. We looked at him like he was from outer space. I mean, he might as well have been. Our only reference point was Haji from uh, Johnny Quest. No, yeah. I never had seen an Indian person. and And now I live in the Detroit metro area. We have this huge Indian population. And I think they want goods from India. Not always. I'm sure they're buying lots of... But there's so many ethnic groups here that used to be just one or two that now are large groups, Hispanic people, which I bet not probably not even worth saying, Mexican people, Colombian people, Guatemala, all, all Latin America. Now, all of a sudden, I can buy products that might have been from my old country. And I think this is going to open up more and more. As you know, I can see... I can see, like, uh, if, if I was to move out of the United States, I would want certain things that I probably couldn't get easily. Now, all of a sudden, I can get them.
1: Totally, 100%. I think that this globalization of supply chain and the demand for global products is definitely there. I think that's the second piece, I guess, you know, which is the negative part of globalization is... That supply chains are uh, so much of manufacturing etc has moved out of the US that it puts during a pandemic, as you all, as we all saw right how much of a. Supply chain risk does the US carry because all of the manufacturing happens outside of the US in China or in Southeast Asia, and so we have to figure out a way to still allow for this globalization, but still have a large amount of redundancy built in where we're not subject to the supply chain shock. Right.
0: I think I can almost guarantee what's happening already. We're moving more and more stuff home. The stuff that we shipped overseas for labor arbitrage, cheaper labor a generation ago is coming home because it's automated now. But anyway, let's switch gears for just a sec. So I getting back to if I was to sell Joe's sock company and I start, I've got growth, and now I say, I can't keep doing all of this myself. I reach out to Drew and his team over at ShipBob and I say, I want my socks to sell everywhere. And I was just thinking out loud here for a second. Yep. I might I might be a sock guy. All right. I've, I've devoted my life to understanding socks. On the other hand, I might be an e commerce guy where I got really good online. Driving traffic, developing websites, understanding how to convert people from visitors to customers. Chances are, I'm not a logistics guy. I am not a warehouse guy. So I think that. And by the way, if you're switching from, you know, brick and mortar, I'm also not. I'm not an e-commerce. I'm not a D 2 C guy, right? So I'm not. I'm not. I'm not into any of that. So I think that having a partner that says, hey, I got, global, I got a global footprint and I get this and I'll connect to you, you're fine. You don't have to learn all of this.
1: All of the, yeah, totally. If you look at all of the different parts of running a supply chain, right? You have to almost get be an expert in manufacturing. You have to figure out what the right inventory count needs to be to be manufactured. You have to right. send it to the right locations you have to negotiate your shipping contracts with ups usps fedex dhl you have to know where once that inventory is manufactured what locations to place that inventory and in. what if something goes wrong after somebody buys a product all the customer support around shipping et cetera, all of those decisions you know are subject to like a supply chain team and so at shipbob our premise is like as a e-commerce brand You don't necessarily need to make that supply chain, chief supply chain officer hire for a very, very long time because Shipbob can act as your, you know, as your interim VP slash chief supply chain officer, which and can guide you in making all of those decisions so that you can work without one because you can trust Shibbob to make those decisions on your behalf by presenting you with the data and abstracting away all of the complexity of shipping contracts and way to distribute inventory, all of that stuff away from you. Where you can just simply focus on building a great brand and building a great product and and finding customers for your product. And if you know that, I think that has worked out really well for a lot of our brands. You know, in helping them scale to from an idea to being a multi-hundred million dollar brands without having to build an entire supply chain team of themselves.
0: Yeah. And I think also inventory is the difference between winning and losing in this business. If I carry too much inventory in any one location, I'm potentially in real trouble. So you guys can say, here, we have the data. We know what you're selling because we're moving it. That's right. And you can say, Joe, you're carrying way too much inventory here. Send some back. And I think you also tell me, hey, this is too slow moving. And it's, it's ending up just being, you're just getting storage costs. Consider getting rid of a few of these products that don't move fast enough.
1: That's right. Yep, exactly. So inventory is the lifeblood of any of these e-commerce brands. And, you know, I guess last week you saw Target and Target earnings come out. Oh my God, yeah. They they talked about how they overordered on a few commodities which are now sitting in their warehouse and that's bringing down their operating margins because they have too much dollars invested in this inventory. And so
0: and their shipping costs were crazy high and too. And the shipping
1: costs and operating labor costs were much higher. And so for for these e-commerce brands because they're using ShipBob they to a large extent are shielded from some of the increases that we are seeing on the labor and the shipping costs because we are able to absorb all of that because we are ha- we are operating at scale. So as a small business owner you don't have the same negotiating leverage with the shippers because you by yourself don't do so much volume but if we can aggregate and pool all of it we can take advantage of the efficiencies at scale and shield business owners from that cost increases and then of course on the inventory side you know if you have access to a modern robust software platform that ShipBob offers you know what is on hand what is how many back orders do you have? How many orders? What is the reserve quantity you need, etc. Like, all of that information is available to you at your fingertips to make the right decision. If
0: I was working with Ship ShipBob, do I have like a dashboard that I log into so I can see?
1: That's right. Yeah. And and most of our business owners, you know, pre ShipBob, they're doing all of this on Excel sheets, so they right. are figuring right. out, you know, how many, what was my PO for? How many did I sell? What is left behind? And and so we are just taking all of that away and saying, hey, you can log in here and you can see accurate real-time inventory information
0: anytime you want. Right. And by the way, one of the things I've said many times on my podcast is in this day and age, if you're using the Excel spreadsheet for your supply chain, for your logistics... <laughs> You're behind. There's better okay. There's better options. Right. So, right. so let's talk about the warehouses, the distribution centers for a second. So you said you have 40 locations around the globe, and most of them here in the United States. And that's so we can get that same day next day. Because, again, I can't ship out of New York to California and say, yeah, I'll get that same day next day. So you have all those locations. Did you guys go and buy all these, or did you partner with these? warehouse company, how did you get all those locations so fast?
1: Yeah, so we partner with a bunch of existing warehouse companies, 3PLs as they're called in the space, yep. third-party logistic providers. So these 3PLs, you know, if you have underutilized or unutilized space in your building...
0: And they all do some, <laughs> some time or another. <laughs> yes,
1: Because, you know, most of these 3PLs, they operated in the B2B environment, pallet in, pallet out. They necessarily are not a big, not a whole lot into e-commerce. So they don't have the software infrastructure or the sales team to go after e-commerce brands. So we come to the 3PLs and say, hey, look, you have this unused space. You want to participate in the e-commerce boom we can help you be a part of the e-commerce by taking up a small portion of your warehouse. We will help you with the software. We will bring the ShipBob technology infrastructure. We will train your employees on how to pick pack, ship our e-commerce orders out. We will pay you for the space we utilize, and we will bring you the demand. So we will bring you access to our customers. You have to follow the instructions on our warehouse management software, which is designed by ShipBob, which is very simple for you to be able to service our customers. And so our warehouses, now without having to spend any more money on their own sales and marketing and on their own customer service now can service these e-commerce brands using the ship infrastructure
0: yeah and it's that's good business too it's it moves right e-commerce moves pretty good
1: very quickly right and it allows you to have higher utilization on your labor staff as well because if there were down times for your other side of your business where you had this labor sitting around waiting for what to do next you can now use all of that labor for the e-commerce and and it's all very digital and it's trackable so you can measure the efficiency you can see what the throughput is and you can see whether
0: you're making money or not that's fantastic so you're a good you're good option option for anybody who's on the e-commerce side but you're also a good option for all these warehouses by the way a lot of warehousing companies i still get these phone calls at least once every once in a while saying can you help us grow my, can you help us grow? They don't have, and what I always say, as I recognize some of the names, they said, do you have a W warehouse management system? And a lot of them will say, no, as soon as we get more business, we're going to get a warehouse management system. So there are still companies that are operating, I'm not going to say in the dark ages, but they're not tech oriented. And so I, I, and by the way, those aren't bad businesses. It's just different businesses. So when somebody says a warehouse, Warehouse could mean I've got a whole bunch of auto parts stored there or uh, service parts or or one of these high-tech e-commerce focused warehouses. So you, you, if somebody says, I have an e-commerce business and I'm going to go down to local warehouse, don't be surprised if they have no ability to manage that properly.
1: Oh, I think that is so true. Majority of the warehouses, I, th- I believe, Joe, what you're describing describes majority of the warehouses right. where they they are, they don't they're not designed to service hundreds of merchants they have a few set number of big merchants that they have been you know they are those anchor merchants and so and for those anchor merchants they can do everything manually because of course everyone knows exactly how to handle that one merchant so they don't have the ability to scale and hence they didn't ha- or they don't have the need of having a wms or warehouse management system because they don't have hundreds of merchants so when when we walk into these warehouses we are basically giving them a business in a box, and and now through our infrastructure, they have access to all of this e-commerce
0: demand that they that they would love to have had. Well, what I like it as a, if I, if I'm selling my getting back to Joe's socks for a second, what I like about it is you vetted 40 locations, and by the way, that's important because I think about half of all warehousing companies have one location. And that's a problem because I can't work well with, I I don't want to vet somebody in Indiana and then have to get a new company in California and then get a new company in Toronto and a new company in England. I'm not set up for that. So I think it's super important that you have a partner like this who can vet. So, Drew, I know I'm going to lose you before too long. So let's switch gears for a second. So you could have grown this big company, got all these locations. So you had to do a lot of hiring And a lot of growth as a founder, and then as an executive, and as of a growing company. What are some of the lessons you've learned along the way?
1: Oh wow, well,
0: way too many. (laughs) The hard way,
1: (laughs) the hard way. Almost all of them, the hard way. I guess the number one lesson is just hire. You know, you a company is effectively the people you hire, and so have a very, very high bar on the individuals that you bring into the company who are motivated by the mission and share the same values or the core values that you imbibe in yourself because they themselves are going to then go out and hire the next 10 people and those 10 people are then going to hire the next 10 people so if you get the first set of people wrong then you'll end up building a very different company than you had initially envisioned so i guess my most important lesson of all the different lessons i've learned is just you know don't compromise on hiring and and hire people with a very strong cultural you know similarities to what what you want in the company.
0: So when COVID hit, so many companies like yours they went they went remote, but no choice initially. But then you made the decision we're going to all be remote with with this dispersed team all over the. Do you have people all over the world now?
1: Yeah, for sure we have uh, we have of course people all over the U.S. We have a big, very big presence in India now. We have local teams in the U.K. and in Australia.
0: How do you keep the culture? Going in a remote environment like that.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a work in progress. So you know we are learning.
0: Everybody's learning. There's no there's no best practice on that, is there?
1: Yeah, if there is one, please send it to me. I'll, I'll <laughs> love to love to do it. But I think one is you know uh, just uh, we use Slack for internal communication. So we have a lot of these conversations happen in Slack where we try to get people to respond to group messages uh, or just common questions. We have this thing called virtual coffee where uh, randomly if you're part of that group like channel then the the bot effectively matches you with different people in the company to meet over coffee where you can talk literally anything you want on a coffee chat it's like a coffee date and then you know we we meet all the managers and and also during the hiring process we are super careful not to get confused between culture culture fit and getting the job done fit like you know performance fit. so you can be the right person to do the job but if you're not a culture fit for ShipBob, you will not get hired and so our focus on getting the culture fit such an important part of the entire hiring process i think we got lucky there where a lot of the people that we've hired share the same core values of ShipBob. so then it becomes a lot easier for you to scale because then the hiring managers are also bought into the culture so when they are hiring they're looking for the same core values as well, and so then it becomes easier for you to scale and, of course, there are so many things we have a culture committee at Shiba which. hosts and does a lot of events and programming all throughout the year, quarter so there's a bunch of things that we've done over the years, but I think it all goes back to like hiring is. We we got lucky that the first 100 200 people that we hired were the right fit and that and then they were able to hire people who they believe were the right fit and all of them, you know, sort of sharing the same values.
0: Right. So you were lucky to get in a wine combinator. It probably probably shouldn't have gotten in there. And then you were lucky to raise all that money, luckily oh, hired the right 200 people. You're just, everything just works out. You're just completely lucky. I'm not buying it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so one, of our, one of our core values is, is humility. And, and so it would be... Yeah, you, you, you live but... it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, uh, it would be incorrect for us to attribute all of the successes and the failures just to our own uh, devices. Like, uh, you know, it's the right place, right time. And so many things have to fall in place for a startup to work. We, it's still very much at Shibaba work in progress.
0: You were, you were lucky you were born to the right parents who raised you right. <laughs> Pick the right partner. So let's wrap this up. So I want to talk. I know I saw, I've already gone past my time with you, Dhruv. Uh, so What's next for you? What's next for ShipBob? And then what's next for this industry? Which, again, that's just, these are all such big questions, but what's you can answer that in any order. What's next for you? What's next for your company? What's next for the industry?
1: Yeah, well, you know, for me and for the company, it's all related. Uh, we are heads down in execution you know we are e-commerce as a f- portion of overall retail in the us is still in the mid teens it took it spiked during covid yep. but it's come back down so we still think there's a long, long road ahead for e-commerce to continue to grow and and so we are very excited to be heads down in building and executing against our mission of bring, bringing great logistics infrastructure because we are still not quite there as yet and and the beauty of e-commerce or customer expectations is that they keep going up. And so what was good today becomes right. average tomorrow. And customers are always demanding a better solution. So for ShipBob to be successful, we have to be heads down, continue to talk to our merchants, see what they're hearing from the customer base and continuing to build on it. So, you know, that's what we are hoping to continue to execute for the next few years.
0: Yeah. So what about the industry? What do you, I think we're seeing... Omnichannel. So people are still going to go to retail locations. They're still going to get stuff delivered to their house. And I think what we're also seeing is a lot of stuff that previously was like retail grocery stuff all of a sudden move to the fulfillment side. So I think we're seeing different things being shipped to homes. So talk a little bit about the industry as we wrap up here.
1: Yeah. So I think Omnichannel is is a real thing. You know, people initially focused on just direct to consumer, just online just being on Amazon or just being on uh, marketplaces, I think now merchants are realizing that, hey, I need to be able to leverage all the different sales channels that I have access to. And so omnichannel, B2B, retail, all of them are different touch points for, the, for you as a brand to get access to the consumer. So that will continue to be true. G- two is global. We are making a heavy bet on global because we believe you know customers are across the globe. They're no longer Absolutely. constrained by nation state boundaries and third one i guess is customization and personalization which is brands you know the one the box that you ship for a brand always uh, has a hundred percent open rate with the customer unlike emails or text messages what have you so if that box can accurately represent your your brand your, if you're an eco-friendly brand for example represent you know what makes you different i think that customization of this unboxing experience of your brand i think it will be a big part of the overall supply chain strategy so customization of the supply chain for us is going to be uh, another big sort of a big enabler for us in the coming months and
0: years X. Excellent, excellent. So Drew, what I'll do Drew, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to your website, and any other links you guys give me, I'll put those in the show notes. And one last time before we wrap this up, who's your sweet spot? Who do you guys work with?
1: We work with brands of all sizes. So a brand can be as low as $100,000 of annual GMV on their website and on the higher end could be as high as $200 million of annual GMV. We found ourselves to be a very scalable uh, solution.
0: Wait, you said GMV? What is it?
1: Gross merchandise volume, like amount of sales you have on your website. Gross merchant
0: value. Okay. I learned, learned a new acronym. All right. Drew, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, congratulations on your success.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. This was a pleasure. Yep.
0: And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward.